Section 14 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 30. Bath, February 22nd, Old Style, 1748. Dear boy, every excellency and every virtue has its kindred vice or weakness, and if carried beyond certain bounds, sinks into one or the other. Generosity often runs into profusion, economy into avarice, courage into rashness, caution into timidity, and so on. Insomuch that, I believe, there is more judgment required for the proper conduct of our virtues than for avoiding their opposite vices. Vice in its true light is so deformed that it shocks us at first sight, and would hardly ever seduce us, if it did not at first wear the mask of some virtue. But virtue is in itself so beautiful that it charms us at first sight, engages us more and more upon further acquaintance, and as with other beauties, we think excess impossible. It is here that judgment is necessary, to moderate and direct the effects of an excellent cause. I shall apply this reasoning at present, not to any particular virtue, but to an excellency, which, for want of judgment, is often the cause of ridiculous and blamable effects. I mean great learning, which, if not accompanied with sound judgment, frequently carries us into error, pride, and pedantry. As I hope you will possess that excellency in its utmost extent, and yet without its too common failings, the hints which my experience can suggest may probably not be useless to you. Some learned men, proud of their knowledge, only speak to decide, and give judgment without appeal. The consequence of which is, that mankind, provoked by the insult, and injured by the oppression, revolt, and in order to shake off the tyranny, even call the lawful authority in question. The more you know, the modester you should be, and, by the by, that modesty is the surest way of gratifying your vanity. Even where you are sure, seem rather doubtful. Represent, but do not pronounce, and if you would convince others, seem open to conviction yourself. Others, to show their learning, or often from the prejudices of a school education, where they hear of nothing else, are always talking of the ancients, as something more than men, and of the moderns, as something less. They are never without a classic or two in their pockets, they stick to the old good sense, they read none of the modern trash, and will show you plainly that no improvement has been made in any one art or science these last seventeen hundred years. I would by no means have you disown your acquaintance with the ancients, but still less would I have you brag of an exclusive intimacy with them. Speak of the moderns without contempt, and of the ancients without idolatry, judge them all by their merits, but not by their ages, and if you happen to have an Elsevier classic in your pocket, neither show it nor mention it. Some great scholars, most absurdly, draw all their maxims, both for public and private life, from what they call parallel cases in the ancient authors, without considering that in the first place there never were, since the creation of the world, two cases exactly parallel, and in the next place that there never was a case stated, or even known, by any historian, with every one of its circumstances, which, however, ought to be known, in order to be reasoned from. Reason upon the case itself, and the several circumstances that attend it, and act accordingly, but not from the authority of ancient poets or historians. Take into your consideration, if you please, cases seemingly analogous, but take them as helps only, not as guides. We are really so prejudiced by our education, 
that as the ancients defied their heroes, we defy their madmen, of which, with all due regard for antiquity, I take Leonidas and Curtius to have been two distinguished ones. And yet a solid pedant would, in a speech in Parliament, relative to a tax of two pence in the pound upon some community or other, quote those two heroes, as examples of what we ought to do and suffer for our country. I have known these absurdities carried so far by people of injudicious learning, that I should not be surprised, if some of them were to propose, while we are at war with the Gauls, that a number of geese should be kept in the tower, upon account of the infinite advantage which Rome received, in a parallel case, from a certain number of geese in the capital. This way of reasoning, and this way of speaking, will always form a poor politician, and a puerile declaimer. There is another species of learned men, who, though less dogmatical and supercilious, are not less impertinent. These are communicative and shining pedants, who adorn their conversation even with women, by happy quotations of Greek and Latin, and who have contracted such a familiarity with the Greek and Roman authors, that they call them by certain names or epithets denoting intimacy, as Old Homer, that sly rogue Horace, Maro, instead of Virgil, and Naso, instead of Ovid. These are often imitated by coxcombs, who have no learning at all, but who have got some names and some scraps of ancient authors by heart, which they improperly and impertinently retail in all companies, in hopes of passing for scholars. If, therefore, you would avoid the accusation of penetry on one hand, or the suspicion of ignorance on the other, abstain from learned ostentation. Speak the language of the company that you are in, speak it purely, and unlarded with any other. Never seem wiser, nor more learned, than the people you are with. Wear your learning, like your watch, in a private pocket, and do not pull it out and strike it, merely to show that you have one. If you are asked what o'clock it is, tell it, but do not proclaim it hourly and unasked, like the watchman. Upon the whole, remember that learning, I mean Greek and Roman learning, is a most useful and necessary ornament, which it is shameful not to be master of. But at the same time most carefully avoid those errors and abuses which I have mentioned, and which too often attend it. Remember, too, that great modern knowledge is still more necessary than ancient, and that you had better know perfectly the present than the old state of Europe, though I would have you well acquainted with both. I have this moment received your letter of the seventeenth new style, though I confess there is no great variety in your present manner of life, yet materials can never be wanting for a letter. You see, you hear, or you read something new every day, a short account of which, with your own reflections thereupon, will make out a letter very well. But since you desire a subject, pray send me an account of the Lutheran establishment in Germany, their religious tenets, their church government, their maintenance, authority, and titles of their clergy. Vittorio Siri, complete, is a very scarce and very dear book here, but I do not want it. If your own library grows too voluminous, you will not know what to do with it when you leave Leipzig. Your best way will be, when you go away from thence, to send to England, by Hamburg, all the books that you do not absolutely want. Yours. Letter 31. Bath. March 1st, Old Style, 1748. Dear Boy, by Mr. Hart's letter to Mr. Grevenkop, of the 21st of February, New Style, I find that you had been a great while without receiving any letters from me. But by this time, I dare say, you think you have received enough, and possibly more than you have read, for I am not only a frequent, but a prolix correspondent. 
Mr. Hart says in that letter that he looks upon Professor Moscow to be one of the ablest men in Europe, in treaty and political knowledge. I am extremely glad of it, for that is what I would have you particularly apply to, and make yourself perfect master of. The treaty part you must chiefly acquire by reading the treaties themselves, and the histories and memoirs relative to them. Not but that inquiries and conversations upon those treaties will help you greatly, and imprint them better in your mind. In this course of reading do not perplex yourself, at first, by the multitude of insignificant treaties which are to be found in the corps diplomatique, but stick to the material ones which altered the state of Europe, and made a new arrangement among the great powers, such as the treaties of Munster, Neumagen, Ryswick, and Utrecht. But there is one part of political knowledge which is only to be had by inquiry and conversation, that is, the present state of every power in Europe, with regard to the three important points, of strength, revenue, and commerce. You will therefore do well, while you are in Germany, to inform yourself carefully of the military force, the revenues, and the commerce of every prince and state of the empire, to write down those informations in a little book for that particular purpose. To give you a specimen of what I mean. The Electorate of Hanover. The revenue is about five hundred thousand pounds a year. The military establishment in time of war may be about twenty-five thousand men, but that is the utmost. The trade is chiefly linens exported from Stade. There are coarse woolen manufacturers for home consumption. The mines of hearts produce about one hundred thousand pounds in silver annually. Such informations you may very easily get, by proper inquiries, of every state in Germany, if you will but prefer useful to frivolous conversations. There are many princes in Germany who keep very few or no troops, unless upon the approach of danger, or for the sake of profit, by letting them out for subsidies to great powers. In that case you will inform yourself what number of troops they could raise, either for their own defense, or furnish to other powers for subsidies. There is very little trouble, and an infinite use, in acquiring of this knowledge. It seems to me even to be a more entertaining subject to talk upon than la pluie et la botin. Though I am sensible that these things cannot be known with the utmost exactness, at least by you yet, you may, however, get so near the truth, that the difference will be very immaterial. Pray let me know if the Roman Catholic worship is tolerated in Saxony, anywhere but at court and if public mass-houses are allowed anywhere else in the electorate. Are the regular Romish clergy allowed, and have they any convents? Are there military orders in Saxony, and what? Is the White Eagle a Saxon or a Polish order? Upon what occasion, and when was it founded? What number of knights? Adieu, God bless you, and may you turn out what I wish. End of section 14 Read by Professor Heather and By for more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.